By most accounts, demand for software engineers exceeds supply. Not just anyone can develop the skill set to the level required to deliver enterprise-grade production code. For those that can, companies are incentivized to take extra measures to ensure software engineers are as productive as possible. The pace of business is often throttled by the pace of software release. In today's episode, I interview Utsav Shah about developer productivity in the context of monoliths, CICD, and best practices for growing teams. Utsav, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. Well, to kick off, can you tell me a little bit about your journey as a software engineer? Yeah, so uh, I studied computer science at the University of Illinois about like eight or nine years ago now. And my first job was at Dropbox uh, on the developer productivity team. I was just interested in working on developer productivity after my last interview at Dropbox, where I was interviewing with someone who used to work on build tools like Blaze and Buck, if you've heard from Google and Facebook, and just the whole idea of managing a build farm of like thousands of servers to run tests and compile code was just really interesting to me. And then I found out that Dropbox is building exactly that, and I was basically sold. I didn't continue my interviews with any other company, mostly. I was just I was just sold. I was like, okay, I'm going to join this team as long as I get an offer. So I worked on developer productivity stuff for three to four years. Then I shifted a little bit to like managing our Python monolith and stuff at Dropbox. And then finally, I just started as a software engineer at Vanta roughly six months ago. And can you share a few details on what exactly developer productivity encompasses? Yeah, so at least at that company, what it meant to us is anything that we can do from like a tooling perspective or a process perspective that can help developers simply like, you know, develop features, fix bugs, anything that could make workflows faster. So our team used to own things like which version control system should be used, which code review system should we use, which task trackers we should use, anything that involved tooling that the entire company used was something that our team used to take care of and decide, you know, maybe these workflows are not good enough. Maybe we have to change things. How do you measure an improvement if you make a change? Oh, it's incredibly tricky. And that's a question that we would get all the time, right? Like you can imagine even with COVID, like the first question that we got from up top was, how has COVID changed things in terms of developer productivity? And you can imagine that answer went down the reporting chain straight to me. And the first answer is like, it's hard to tell, right? It's hard to tell how remote work actually changes things. But it's easier to measure, I would say, certain parts of the workflow, like measuring edit refresh time, for example. Like it's clear that if your edit refresh time degrades significantly, uh, that's going to affect developer productivity. Measuring time to feedback from the CI system. So if you get, you know, results like test results from your pull request in 15 minutes, that's good. If it's 90 minutes, that's bad. So we could measure bits and pieces of the workflow. We used to also measure things like git status time because our repos got big enough that git status would just be slow. So we could measure bits and pieces like that and then overall try to stitch a picture saying these things are slowly regressing or slowly improving over time. And then overall, more broadly, the best mechanism that I've found after thinking about this for a long time is this idea of an engineering efficiency survey. This is not an idea that I came up with, 
but i think it's the most effective way that i've found to like suss out problems and understand what's going on in the developers minds and where they're getting blocked so the idea of sending out a survey like once a year or twice a year to every engineer in your company with something like with with questions like what are the tools and processes that block you the most uh, what are you most happy with if there's one thing you could change what could you change and then having enough data to slice and dice that with things like so engineers who've been here for 5 years they're kind of used to the workflow they're not going to complain much just because they don't they're, they're kind of used to every how everything works here and you get comfortable with it but people who've just been here for 3 months and they've been at other companies they're like oh this thing is a little interesting why is this workflow so slow it doesn't have to be this slow so being able to break that data down like that survey data in my experience has been the most effective way to actually measure how engineers how effective engineers feel at the company at least were there any particularly insightful bits of feedback you remember from the survey the biggest thing was always open space layouts people absolutely disliked like open space layouts a lot and there's not much we could do as a developer productivity team and that was just so much more important compared to every other factor it was honestly a little disappointing that we couldn't do anything about it so that used to always stick out and i think as the company grew bigger uh, just documentation and the fact that you lose tribal knowledge super easily when people leave that used to always be much much bigger than you know that we don't like this tool or we don't like the ci cd process it always used to be you know we don't have enough we, we don't retain enough knowledge in our organization in order to be effective there's so many things where if i if that person hadn't quit and i would have known i would have just saved 3 months of my time trying to build this so when i think about developer productivity there's maybe a couple of categories which you were mentioning I echo I don't like an open layout so maybe providing me a place I can work with reasonable good surroundings it's quiet and all that that's an important aspect there's also I guess tools like IntelliSense that are guardrails or helpers as I I would do my work and then there's removing something like automating away a process or a chore I don't want to do do you think of it in the same broad brush strokes or are there other categories you you use when uh kind of putting together your view of what developer productivity is. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two main ways I categorize it. So the first one is tooling and non-tooling things, which is basically things like for tooling it's it's how are the IDEs functioning? Do we have the right like IDE extensions? Do we have the right version control system? And then everything else falls under non-tooling, right? Like do we have the right documentation? Do we have the right layouts in our offices? So that's the first way we divide stuff and It's easier to measure the first one. It's easier to measure improvements. It's easier to measure changes. It's easier to see regressions. Whereas the second one is much more qualitative. And the second thing that we look at is synchronous versus asynchronous workflows. At least when you're blocked on, you know, your IntelliSense giving you some result of th- this code doesn't type check. Your you you an, a context switch at that time is extremely expensive. So we want to keep that workflow as tight as possible. but if there's some workflow which takes you like 30 minutes and even in an ideal world it cannot be faster than 20 minutes let's say that stuff would just get slightly less attention because you have already context switch you're already doing something else and as at least a developer productivity team there's limited roi in us trying to make that workflow grow from 30 minutes to 25 minutes in most cases in some cases you know if you're blocked on pushing out like a rollback of an important service 
that difference from 30 to 25 minutes is important. But for everything else, we would basically try to focus more on synchronous workflows, try to speed them up. And for asynchronous workflows, we would see things like, can we notify people better? Like maybe can we send an email as we've made some progress on this like long running workflow, for example. And when you have a big win, what form does it usually take? Yeah, so the big wins are usually twofold. There's either a metric gets better. Let's say things like how many times does a developer get blocked because of a flaky test in their pre-submit test or post-submit test? So how many times does a release get blocked because of a flaky test? Or how long does a release take to happen? Those things are relatively easy to measure as soon as you set up like the right measurements, things like how often did a developer try to submit the same patch twice and the first time it failed and the second time it passed. M moving that number from, you know, things failing like 30% of the time to things failing 10% of the time, that's a pretty measurable success. And that, that's the kind of thing we would celebrate, at least on the measurable tooling side. Uh, with, with things like documentation and things like uh, that were the non-tooling, the more process-oriented or qualitative workflows, I think it was just surveys, right? We would see surveys and see if things are regressing or things are improving. And usually there's not much we could have done at that point, so there were not that many celebratory moments. Let's talk a little bit about repository specifically, source control. What sort of developer productivity concerns arise as a team and the amount of code it's writing grows? Yeah, so as the amount of code goes up, especially when you have teams of like uh, 100 developers, 200 developers, or even more, it's super easy to share code if you have code in the same repository. So at least Dropbox, how it operated is that we had a bunch of repositories for server code, for client code, and for mobile code. So client, we just talk about as like the desktop client. And in your server code repository, it's super easy to share code, which can be a good thing when that code is meant to be shared. But then if you combine that with a language which allows you to easily share code, something like Python, you might not want to share that code as much, especially if that code was not meant to be shared, like it didn't have the right checks and balances put in place, it didn't have the right validation. So as your company grows or as your size of the engineering team grows, you actually want to make sure that you're separating your code into like logical components. So that's one of the most important aspects that we ran into. Um, the second interesting thing is, is actually around tests. So there's this interesting conundrum that happens with tests where if you have a growing number of developers every month or every year, let's say, and each developer is adding more tests to the code base. Uh, in our experience, and I think this is generally true, like developers don't like deleting tests from the code base unless they delete like the, the feature itself. So the size of your test suite keeps growing and the number of developers you have keep growing. So it, there's this kind of quadratic growth in your total test time that it takes, like how long it takes for you to get feedback from your entire like test suite to run especially if your CI system has limited resources. So th that number actually grows kind of quadratically. And then what, what happens is one year you have test times that take like 15 minutes to come back from the CI system. Next year you have like 30 minutes and then it just grows to like 90 minutes unless you pay a lot of attention or you parallelize your test instances a lot. 
So that is another interesting challenge that we continuously dealt with. Like, how do we make sure that we provide the right number of compute instances to actually run all of these tests uh, so that developers can get results faster? And then at the same time, like, how do we balance our budget and make sure we don't spend too much money just running tests? Well, one approach some technology companies will take on when they start encountering a large project like that, maybe some problems with long-running tests, is to split the code up into individual smaller components. Maybe have some core system that's a library imported by other things and to kind of divide it up into these, you know, separated but sometimes loosely coupled subsystems or libraries that get imported. This is in strict contrast to a monorepo. Can you share your thoughts on monorepos and why, uh, under what circumstances that might be a preferred approach? Yeah, so this was the perennial debate, right? Like the monorepo versus multi-repo, because there were so many challenges with getting a monorepo right. But ultimately, everyone did want to share code. So uh, just to go back to the example we had, so we had all of our like server code in one repository and the desktop client code in another one. But then developers wanted to use TypeScript, that shared code between the server code base and the client code base in the client code base. So what we ended up building was some kind of syncing scheme that would take code that was written on the server side TypeScript that could be used in the browser for just the main website. And they could reuse that or reuse components of that in the client code base. And then managing that became really tricky because you would have often have times when someone would refactor code on the server code base, nobody would sync it to the client code base, somebody would change uh, something on the client code base such that it was incompatible with that refactor. And when you try to sync the next time, things would break in a way that you would not expect. So I think it really depends on how, how much you want to share code between different sources, right? If you have logically separated components, let's say like services in completely different languages that don't need to share any common dependencies, I actually think like separating them out is totally fine. But if you want to share your code or if you want to test your code together, for example, if there is some kind of coupling, I think it makes sense to put them in, in put all of that code in the same repository so you don't end up reinventing the wheel and building a bunch of tooling to sync stuff and like maybe set something up, get up actions or something. I do think that there is like a tooling gap here, like in a world where if it was relatively easier to set up syncs between private repositories that could happen more seamlessly, that could ensure that, you know, a backwards compatible change and a dependent repository would not break things in the, the main repository, then maybe it's fine to separate things out. I think it's just a question of what is the most frictionless path for you as a developer. And the other side is that Git is getting a continuous set of improvements for monorepos. So all of the arguments around, uh, you know, Git is going to be too slow for me because I'm sharing um, my repository is going to get too big. I think if you manage your repository the right way, if you make sure there's not large binary files checked into the repository, Git is actually getting better pretty much like every year with like new features like sparse checkout and like partial clones and stuff. And I think that is not a super valid argument anymore. So does that make you more in favor of recommending monorepo as a design principle for projects that are maybe greenfield or just starting up? To start off with, you should start with the simplest things like one repository, like a monolith. Don't start with building 100 microservices if you don't need them. Only break them up and only break things up when there's like logical separation and you don't want to have your 
code like tightly coupled. I would say start simple, start with the least amount of things first, break things up when you want to make sure that there isn't dependencies and you want to make sure there's actually like an abstraction boundary. Like I think a perfectly valid use case is if you want to open source part of your stuff, right? I think it's tricky even today, even with the open source tooling, there is to just open source parts of a repository. In that use case, it's totally valid to just create a separate one and depend separate repository depend on that. But for everything else, if you're starting a greenfield project, put everything in one place and then eventually break it up when you have to. Do you see any challenges that teams face as they grow? You know, both in in size and in departments, maybe even different schools of thought or coding philosophies start to get expressed amongst little groups. Are there challenges in keeping a cohesive project together when everyone's contributing to it? I think there certainly are challenges. I think that inflection point happens much later than most people think. That's my opinion. I think until you're at that point where you have like a hundred developers, hundred and fifty developers, I don't think you have that many challenges i could be wrong here eventually though you want to do what's right for your company right like i think the two main models that we see is like the amazon model and the google facebook and everyone else model where amazon just believes you should split up into two pizza teams each two pizza team should have its own repository its own component its own service or whatever that logical boundary is whereas you have like the googles and facebooks which have one repository or a very few number of repositories for everyone both can manage things, both need to have, both need to put a lot of investment in their tooling ecosystems. If you look at the build systems of Amazon and how they have to manage packages, if you look at the build systems of Google and like now they've open sourced it so you can actually see the amount of work they need to put in, both can be done. I think the key part is, can you logically separate out components in a way that other people don't use your code when you don't want them to use your code, right? And what I mean by that is, if you look at Google's build tool, which is Bazel, there's this idea of visibility rules, right? You can say something like, code from only these certain parts of the repository are allowed to depend on my module. Everyone else needs to actually put another entry into this allow list of visibility. And I think you need tools like that if you are going to put everything in one place when you're a big company, because you don't want too much code sharing. Too much code sharing ends up being, there ends up being too much coupling between components that don't need to have coupling, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And do you have any advice or best practices to highlight for how companies can be really strategic about keeping their code organized? I think in the startup, at least this is what we saw eventually, right? We we had a monolith that grew way too big and it lasted too long until we could finally break it up. I think web apps, when they're starting off, like many apps have this idea of separating out code by like model view and controller. You put everything in these common set of libraries and that's fine initially, but eventually if you try to put all of your models in one folder and there's no clear owner of like who owns this part of the code base versus other parts of the code base, things can get kind of messy. You want to be in a world when if you have multiple teams contributing to like, let's say the same web app, you want to divide up things by component. So let's say you have a folder for user authentication. You have a component for some other business logic. You have another component for webhooks. If these components can be owned by separate teams, they should be separated out into like these different directories where one component cannot depend on code from another component. You want 
to have this common library which is basically curated and you want to make sure you're not putting everything in that common library where like multiple components can depend on but for each component that's owned by another team by, by, by a specific team you want to make sure that code cannot depend from one component to the other one and the reason for that is code sharing should be an explicit choice you don't want code to be shared when you don't if that's not what you as an author or you as the maintainer intended. But if you think it's a good idea to share that code, you should be able to share that code with everyone, put that in the library. I think a small change like that can make a big difference, right? Because people are just more intentional about where their code should live and who should be using their code and why. What's the difference between a role in developer productivity and a role in DevOps? Yeah, I think that's a fabulous question, right? Like DevOps means so many different things for so many different people. I've never really caught one definition of that word. And now there's more and more like permutations of that word coming up. There's DevSecOps for de like for the security aspect. DevOps, I think, is more of an idea of like developers should be managing their own operations, if I understand it correctly. And I think that's a good thing, but that's pretty different from developer productivity. Like our role was, how do we make sure that all of the other engineers at this company are more productive? Whereas DevOps is more of an idea of, as a developer, I should be managing the life cycle of my code. I should be making sure that I do the operations. If there's a bug in production, I need to roll back. As a feature developer on this particular service or whatever, I should be able to roll back that code. So I think they're pretty different terms. And how much of developer productivity is about bringing new innovations into a company versus just improving existing process? I think the, like the role of developer productivity is to see uh, where things have grown organically and are not optimal. Like just taking a fresh look at things, right? Like understanding what the best practices look like and understanding where your organization does not meet those best practices and where you can change things. A lot of times, like, why are developers at a startup like relatively happier than like extremely large companies? In my opinion, it's just because they're not bogged down by the amount of bureaucracy, both in terms of people, but also in terms of tooling. So a lot of developer productivity is understanding just by understanding like first principles, right? This certain workflow should not take more than 10 minutes. Creating a new PR and seeing test results for it should not take more than 15 minutes. Like having those principles, understanding what good looks like, and then trying to apply that in your organization. And the application of those principles might be, need innovation, right? Like maybe it's impossible for your test suite to run in anything less than 30 minutes. So now how do you get to that first principles idea of, can I get my tests running in 15 minutes? Maybe the solution is that you just have to run less tests. Maybe the solution is you can parallelize much more and you have to argue with uh, whoever manages your budget, just double your testing budget, right? So the solutions and how you get to those principles of what good development looks like have to be innovative and you have to figure out maybe from the industry or maybe just from talking to peers how to get there. But I think what good development looks like can be a pretty simple answer, right? Like if you're a C++ shop and you have an extremely large code base, uh, it might be tricky for you to get to like a fast edit refresh time. But if you're using JavaScript, right, there is no compilation. Like even if you have a large code base, um, you should have a fast edit refresh time. So a lot of your tools dictate what your developer productivity could look like. And then it, it, it depends on you to apply those innovations and actually get there. 
Are there any common pitfalls or growing pains you've seen repeat uh, in different organizations? Yeah, there's this idea of inflection points. And then there's this idea of high priority tech debt or, or like high interest tech debt is the way I like to think about it. And I think the best example, if you if you look at high interest credit card debt, right, if you don't pay it, you, you basically have to pay a high interest rate in order to pay it down. I would think there are certain kinds of tech debt which are high interest. And an example of that is uh, flaky tests, right? So let's say you've upgraded the database client version you're using, and suddenly a bunch of your tests start flaking out. The reason why I would say this is a high interest tech debt is you've just made this change, right? So you have an inkling of an idea why these tests are flaky. I was on, I was using this uh, database client library four. It was fine. I upgraded to five. It started flaking out. Maybe it's related to my change. But if you don't fix that tech debt at that time, it affects all your developers for a lot of time. So they get slightly slower. That's the first thing. So your product velocity goes down. The second thing is, let's say you leave the company with that little tidbit of knowledge, right? Now, nobody really knows why tests got flakier. You had this idea because you did this upgrade, but you left. And now it's just assumed that, you know, tests are flaky. There's nothing we can do about it. It's really hard to fix. When, you know, the right answer was when you upgraded that database client library, you could have dug in, you could have tried to figure out what's going on. The probability of you finding a fix at that problem is much higher when you just made that change versus waiting six months or like when you leave the company and then it's extremely hard to make that change because nobody even knows what the problem is. So what I've seen is companies that don't focus on that high interest tech debt, right? Like things that will compound negatively over time, they get to the state which is just really bad right at the end and then and then there's this vicious cycle of all the good developers want to leave because they think oh the tooling isn't great here and i don't want to spend my life at a place where the tooling is just so bad and that that's that's a pattern that i've seen at a bunch of places and in general things that are high interest tech debt are things that you should be looking out for. Flaky tests is like the perfect example here, but also things like your build times getting slow because of small mistakes. It's really hard to fix that when they've accumulated over time. So things like just not measuring that over time is another problem that I've seen. This may be a bit of a philosophical question, but do you have any thoughts on the root cause of why companies start accruing technical debt? Yeah, so my perspective or my opinion on that is if you don't have experienced engineering leadership early on, what you end up doing is you end up focusing 90 to 100% of your time on just product features, making building new things for customers, which is totally reasonable. And that's what your impression would be, right? We're just building new stuff. We want to make our customers happy. And it might be the right thing to do, right? Like maybe your company will die if you don't build features fast enough. But and what what ends up happening, in my opinion, is when you focus only on that, when, you, when your deadlines are tight enough that you just want to focus on shipping new stuff, you don't allocate any time to fixing existing stuff. And that leads you to productivity slowdowns many years down the road. If you've had engineering leadership that sees this as a potential risk and like a potential problem for your company many years down the road and they're incentivized and they actually want to make sure that doesn't happen, the best things that I've seen is engineers actually allocating or engineering leaders allocating something like, you know, 10% of all of engineering time or some percentage that they agree with, you know, the head of product or whatever will be spent towards like 
engineering efforts. That might mean simple things like just cleaning up code. That might mean things like ensuring we don't have flaky tests. It might even mean things like we need to make sure we upgrade this SDK library because it's deprecated and we don't want to be using deprecated stuff anymore. So in my experience and what I've seen is when, when leaders don't have that perspective of we, we can't spo- uh, focus 100% of our like time, our engineering time on product features, we need to spend some time on making sure stuff gets cleaned up. That's when things can stay good over like a long period of time. Whereas if you focus all of your time on just like product velocity, over time, you'll notice that things get slowed down and it's impossible to dig yourself out of that hole. Usav, you are also the host of the Software at Scale podcast. Tell me a little bit about what happens on your show. Yeah, so this is a show that I started as a quarantine hobby roughly in November or December last year. And I basically talked to people about just technical stories that I'm interested in. So things like... How how did the Google web server, the first ever, um, like like the, the whole website that runs google.com, right? It's pretty secretive. Nobody actually knows what's going on, right? So I got one of the engineers who worked on that for a really long time to talk over there. And I, I talk about things like, you know, how did you build this stuff? How did you build out, how did you migrate the Windows repository from whatever source control system you used previously to Git. All of these technical stories are super interesting to me, and I try to get guests who are either engineers or like engineering leaders to talk about their stories and their like uh, and how they've what they've learned over time. Yeah, very neat. Do you want to share another example or two? What are some of the uh, most insightful moments you found for yourself during the show? Yeah, I've learned so much from the show, just talking to people who have so much more experience than me. Uh, my most recent guest is actually the creator of Python, and that episode's going to be out pretty soon. So Guido is working on uh, speeding up Python. That's his new job at Microsoft. And we used to be co-workers before that. So, so that episode just basically dives into how do you speed up Python when there's so many C extensions that depend on the internal APIs of the CPython code base. And he, he basically walks through all of the challenges and all of the efforts around that and how over time they actually believe that they can speed up Python. So that's an episode we talk about just for like 40 minutes, super technical. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, I'd encourage you to like listen to it. Very cool. And maybe to wind up, are you interested in covering some of the technical challenges you're facing in your role today? Yeah, so today I work at Vanta, which is a company that automates security and compliance for you. There's a ton of challenges in the security monitoring space, just super simple things, right? Making sure that every employee in your organization has their hard drives encrypted, they have screen locks enabled. These are important requirements for audits. These are also important requirements for security. So verifying that, like running agents on employee laptops, verifying things against your cloud providers, simple things like making sure your S3 buckets are encrypted, extremely important for security. And it actually gets challenging when you have to deal with thousands and millions of these and make sure that you're continuously testing them. So that's what I do on my day job now. Very neat. Are there any notable technical challenges? That seems like a lot of scalability issues as you add more and more things to check. Yeah, the most latest thing that I worked on is still screen lock. And I worked on that for much more time than I thought I would. At least 
in this case, there's like five different ways I think you can configure whether your screen gets locked on Windows. There's so many registry items to check. We, we actually use this open source uh, tool called OS Query, which is something Facebook released a few years ago, just to check different things like, do you have a certain set of registry items uh, like checked off that verify that your screen actually locks within the R that like the HIPAA law mandate. So things like that is what, what I've, I've been working on recently. But then there's also maintaining an ingestion pipeline, right? Like when you have lots of employee laptops sending you that data, you actually need to uh, buffer that in some kind of queue, store that in some place, run tests against that data, show that data in a way that's usable for admins to actually remediate. All of those things put together are something that I've been working on most recently. Well, to wind up, any particular technologies you're excited about or getting into at the moment? Yeah, I have been super into GraphQL recently. It's something that I did not really understand, I would say, six or eight months ago until I started at this new job. And at first, I was kind of confused. Why would you define things in a way that seems like I'm someone, as you might have noticed on this podcast, who's not who really doesn't like things when they're too tightly coupled. So I was like, why would you have an API with one root object where you can query everything? But over time, I'm really understanding the power of GraphQL. And I just think if there's someone who's been building REST APIs all your life, try to build one side project with using GraphQL, especially as things get slightly more complicated. You'll really see the value of you know data loaders being able to query through the graph, Thinking in like a GraphQL way versus a REST way is very different. You won't end up with thousands and thousands of REST APIs that slightly that do mostly the same thing, but just make slightly different API calls. I think it's a very unique and new paradigm shift, I would say. And I certainly think it's one of those things you should try out, even if you don't want to use it at your day job. It's just a different way to look at how you can structure data that you need to expose the clients. And there's also clearly like interest, right? Like Shopify just released their new like documentation tool with that, that just shows their like API reference in GraphQL. And I think it's amazing. I, think, I just think GraphQL in general is an interesting technology for people to try out. Well, good advice. Utsav, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.